You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Thank you for joining another uh, episode on the RN Mentor podcast. Today, we're being joined by Dr. Lisa Campbell. Uh, she is a professor and director of the Postmasters Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing with a focus on population health, epidemiology, and health policy. Dr. Campbell also founded Population Health Consultants, LLC, a company committed to improving population health, and is also the immediate past chair of the American Public Health Association Public Health Nursing Section, chairperson of the Council of Public Health Nursing Organizations, and a member of the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments Board of Directors. So with that said, welcome Dr. Campbell to the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you here today. Yes, thank you. Uh, and for those who don't know, I have been uh, following your work through Twitter. That's how I initially connected with you. And that is definitely a place for nurses to connect these days. So if you're not on Twitter, I think you should, everybody should be on Twitter and build a huge uh, a nursing community there uh, that are sharing information and supporting each other. So uh, thank you for agreeing to be on the show. You're, you're welcome. Is, is it okay if I call you Ollie? Yes, absolutely. Please okay. do. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. I would encourage everybody to get on Twitter because it's a great platform to meet people. That's how I met you and found out about your amazing work and your life yeah. and um, honestly, I think it's a great way to enrich our uh, personal and professional lives. Right. right. Uh, I mean, there's other social media uh, platforms, but I've really found Twitter to be kind of the like the go-to place. It's real time, uh, people interacting, uh, but you know, you have to be careful at the same time. But again, finding the right people and connecting with them, it's much uh, has been very um, rewarding. Nothing, Absolutely. if nothing else. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, so uh, with that said, uh, I really, you know, uh, want to start talking about you and your professional career, an impressive professional career. Uh, and uh, for for anybody looking to learn more about Dr. Campbell, uh, her full bio uh, is on uh, my website uh, and you can find her information there. Uh, so Dr. Campbell, I just want to ask, uh, how did you get involved with nursing and what took you down the path of public health nursing specifically? Well, first, please call me Lisa. Will do. Okay, because <laughs> we're colleagues. <laughs> so um, I've been a nurse since 1983. 
at like 37 years, it kind of blew me away the other day when I dusted off. I was cleaning out my jewelry box and found my nursing pin. And on the back, I had the date engraved. So it was March of 1983. Pretty cool. So I've been a nurse for a long time. Um, Started out in uh, the burn intensive care unit, made my way through critical care, um, various leadership positions, and then realized I really wanted to focus on geriatrics. So I got my master's in uh, focus on geriatrics and administration and um, went on to get my geriatric nurse practitioner post-master's and the certificate program and just absolutely fell in love with that population. Um, I I started out in Galveston at um, a center where it had multiple stages of living from um, independent living to a nursing home uh, facility. I I got to teach family medicine residents about uh, the care of the older population or the older patient, which was exciting. And I'll never forget one of my favorite, I have to tell you about this, one of my favorite patients there, um, God rest her soul, her name's Loretta. And Loretta, uh, Loretta and I became fast friends and she was in an independent, she was on the independent living side. Uh, so much so that at the time I was pregnant, she kept asking me about how I was doing. Uh, we established this great relationship. My husband even went to visit her. And I'll never forget um, what she said to me. She said, you know, one of the most important things that we can do in life is be in relationships. And I think that was the main success for her life. And she died at 100. Um, and I'll never forget her. You know how there's some patients that you interact with and some people in your life you interact that profoundly touch you. And Loretta was one of them. She was pretty amazing. So after my sojourn in geriatrics and becoming a nurse practitioner, I ended up doing preventive cardiology for a number of years um, and really liked that. I I did it with the adult and older population um, and discovered that I was fascinated with the whole notion of preventive cardiology, like preventing cardiovascular disease. And then it dawned on me that I've probably always been a public health nurse at heart. (laughs) It just took me a long time to get there. So so in uh, 2009, I enrolled and was accepted in the Doctor of Nursing Practice program at the University of Tennessee in Memphis, Uh, completed that in 2011. And the strangest thing happened to me, though, when I graduated. Now, you would think that a nurse with 30 plus years that just got her DNP in public health nursing would be able to find a job somewhere, right? You'd you'd think that. You you should be able to find a job somewhere. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. (laughs) I was so deflated. Um, I I was in not a good space. Um, I, I knocked on all the doors. I applied for public health positions at the state. I looked on the federal website. I even applied for the CDC EIS fellowship, which is the Epidemic Intelligence Service. I really wanted to be one of those those folks. Um, And I figured if I couldn't find a job, I'd better make a job. Uh, So I started a consulting company, uh, Population Health Consultants, LLC, and started just doing pro bono work, uh, local churches, 
there was a, a homeless coalition that wanted to look at uh, providing services for the homeless. So we worked and developed those. Um, and, and I just used my skill set uh, in that way in our community, which was one of the best things I think I ever did was giving back in that way because I gained so much. I gained confidence. I built a strong network, which is really important as we go through our career. And then um, something amazing happened. <laughs> um, I got a call from one of the local from the local judge, and he wanted to talk to me about the public health department. And I uh, saw so I went. Oh yeah, I went into the courthouse and met with him. And he said, "Dr. Campbell." I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "I want to know um, how we can fix the public health department." And and you know. <laughs> You got to be careful. That's a loaded question, right? <laughs> a very loaded question. I said, well, sir, um, I think it's a matter of building capacity and getting them outside into the community because the community really didn't even know we had a health department. Wow. And they weren't really engaged fully in activities out in the community. So I ended up, long story short, I ended up getting a uh, job as a consultant with the health department. Um, I facilitated uh, their community health needs assessment and improvement plan with 29 stakeholder groups. And we did that in a matter of one year, start to finish. Um, and, and the amazing thing was I calculated to the hour how long it would take me to do that job. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's it. That is incredible. <laughs> but but after that, uh, it was so successful that the commissioners asked me three times to be the public health department director. <laughs> <laughs> and so on the third time, uh, doing some negotiation, I, I ended up agreeing to do that. And they charged me with turning the ship. And I felt like I was turning the Queen Mary, you know, wow, it was yeah. one of those kind of things. But the staff is tremendous there tremendous team you just got to have a transform transformational leader and somebody that can think about how the the public health department is an asset to a community so that that's what i did um, before i moved to san antonio yeah. uh, so do you think uh just as you're talking about uh the leadership uh, component of this um was it was it how how I'm trying to try think of the right words. How was uh, your previous experience? How did that contribute to you being able to be that transformational leader uh, in that arena that was, you know, fairly new to you uh, or the position was new to you? I mean, you've been nursing for a long time. Um, and I think at every component of nursing, there's a public health nursing, whether nurses realize or re realize it or not, they are at when they contribute to the patient's education, when they contribute to the community education, they are acting as public health nurses. Uh, so how did that previous experience uh, uh, help you with that role? So um, I've had a lot of leadership roles along my career. I started out early in professional organizations, I became the first president of Texas Nurse Practitioners, um, and just subsequently, because I really believe as nurses, we should belong to professional organizations or we need to belong to professional organizations to get back, to give back and to improve things. And, and if you're, if you're going to complain, you should have a solution. So I had had a lot of rich leadership experiences in professional organizations, learned a lot of hard lessons, 
a lot of things I wish I had done differently. Uh, and then when I had this opportunity to become the public health department director, I reached out to some of my colleagues who had sat in similar positions and asked their advice uh, moving forward. So I called on, I did, um, you know, uh, episodic mentoring sessions with my colleagues uh, who were incredibly helpful. It helped me formulate a plan moving forward. Um, I think the most important thing for me really was to gain the trust of the staff there, that team, um, to let them know what our objective was, to really listen to them. Um, that was really critical in transforming that public health department director to get, uh, department to, together because we did do it together. So that that was really crucial. And in terms of the public health nursing, you know, I really if I if I could just build on what you said. So, you know, in in the acute care and primary care setting, uh, nurses really do look at that individual patient. And what we do want nurses to do, especially now, is to think about the connection to the community. And many times they're working you know, we want them to work as upstream as possible. So, you know, downstream the individual and then they move midstream. So that's referring that individual who might need assistance with transportation, as you know, or food pantry and so forth. And then going further up, that has to do with payment systems and so forth within that primary care uh, and acute care setting. But the key is, is to jump that stream and to really focus more in the community as the client or the patient domain or the population, you know, as your patient domain and really think about those bigger policy issues. Cause that's really what we did. We focused on the smoke free ordinance in our, in our city, which as you know, is, is a really, it's going to protect the entire community, not just one individual. So we really focused on that broad overarching. And as a public health nurse, I always look at the system, the entire uh, community and the population versus just the individual. So that's, I, you know, I just thank you for indulging me. I just wanted to make that distinction. But but I it would be my goal for people to begin to think in that manner, nurses at all levels to be able to think in that in that manner, as you described earlier. Uh, that's one of the things that actually I uh, talk about with my when I'm talking to my students is really focusing on population health because they can have such a bigger uh, impact and a bigger understanding mm-hmm. of, uh, for example, disease management when they look at population health. Um, actually, have my students look up um, income levels of different areas within. Uh, the counties uh, around the U.S. and looking at the population that way because that has such a huge factor uh, in that population's health. Um, so um, going, going a little bit with that, what are some, mm-hmm. uh, from a policy perspective, because that's one that I think that's that's one of the most uh, abstract things when we talk to nurses who, who may be bedside or in a hospital, um, policies, right? How policies affect populations. Right. Um, um, can you give us a like, couple of things that you've worked on uh, that would that you could think about that policies that you looked at from a public health perspective that uh, uh, had needed policy changes uh, yeah. to really address like the disease process or the thing the health issues that were happening. 
Yeah, so I'll talk about the health issues that uh, ultimately affect the disease process. So you made some really good points. Um, the, the, the first one I was describing was the smoke-free ordinance that got passed in our, in our city. Uh, the thing I think that's important for nurses to understand is wherever they live, what is the jurisdiction? What is the rule of law within their own state? So as an example, Texas is a home rule state. So that means that if the city, so I live in San Antonio. So if the city of San Antonio wants to pass a smoke-free ordinance, they can put it on the ballot and the citizens can vote for it, or it can be passed through city council. The best way really to do is put it on the ballot, honestly, so that your constituents support it. Um, If, however, Bear, Bear County, which is where we live, wanted to do a smoke-free ordinance then to cover everybody within the county, they're not allowed to do that in Texas because the counties are only allowed certain types of uh, ordinances or or certain types of rules that they can pass. Um, It would take the state of Texas to pass a law that we had a statewide smoke-free ordinance. And until some things change, uh, politically in the state of Texas, that that may not happen anytime soon. Although there has been some progress with, you know, the sale of tobacco to, you know, no sale of tobacco to anybody under the age of 21, you know, the electronic nicotine delivery devices. That was something I tried to get added to our, our city smoke-free ordinance was to add the e-cigarettes to that, um, which was unfortunately a learning experience, uh, and and we were not successful, but hopefully they'll move in that direction. The other thing, more locally, so let's think about, here's something I think everybody can relate to, too. Uh, Another policy we worked on, I mean, we worked on many policies, but another one that's more tangential, I think, especially for a nurse in the acute care setting, is mother-friendly workplace policies, Mm -hmm. okay? So, you know, we want to have uh, healthy moms, healthy babies. And the best way to do that is for the mom, if if she can, right, and chooses to do that, I want to always make that caveat, right. is to breastfeed. And so in order to do that, we have to have mother-friendly workplace policies that support a mother's decision or a woman's decision to breast, breastfeed. And we, <laughs> it's really interesting how you can uh, create a little competition with your local hospitals. So let me back up just one step here and think about the system. So as a public health nurse and public health department director, the local public health system isn't just the public health department. As you know, it's law enforcement, it's local schools, it's nonprofits, it's healthcare system. It's the entire system put together every, all the sectors in your community, faith-based organization, all those sectors, right? Okay. So um, we can kind of spur a little friendly competition with our hospitals if we're creative and we do it right. So what I did uh, in order to move in this direction, so we had WIC, uh, Women, Infant, Children uh, Nutrition Program within the health department. I worked with our WIC director, Uh, And I had uh, two of our doctor of nursing practice students who took on this policy to present the pros and cons of mother-friendly workplace policy. They had even implemented in their organization. They had taken pictures of what the room looks like in the hospital. 
they they were able to describe their policies to other nurses at the hospitals in our community, which was really important. Nurse to nurse, so, you know, kind of dialogue. So I convened a meeting at our health department with our WIC director. The two doctor of nursing practice students came in one. uh, So I was in Victoria, so that's South Texas. So they came in from Dallas and Austin, respectively, which was amazing. Uh, They presented this to the nursing directors for maternal child services at both hospitals that were definitely, there's definitely competition between the hospitals. So it, it was very well received. And they also agreed to provide technical assistance to both of these hospitals, you know, sample policies, any, any way they could support well, I'm happy to report to you. Now, it took a, a, a number of an additional probably six to nine months. But before I left that health department, and I was there about 15, 16 months, both of those facilities became mother-friendly um, facilities. And we helped our county become a mother-friendly facility. And we were targeting the five largest organizations to try to help them as well. So we can, as nurses, we have an opportunity within systems to look at policies that, like this one, that support a woman's decision to breastfeed, which helps create a healthy community, right? Absolutely. Healthy population. So that's 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 more, that's a policy I think that's really important. Um, there's other policies. There's transportation policies. We can work with local governments about transportation uh, resource access for communities in um, uh, resource poor zip codes. Uh, we can look at those kinds of things creatively. I, I think it's really just expanding the way that we think about health in our community and cre- what it means to create healthy communities. Um, so you touched on a really great point of having of public health really being multifaceted with various uh, uh, types of disciplines that are involved with it. Uh, From a nursing perspective, because, you know, uh, um, public health nursing is a very niche population, uh, but we have, you know, what is it, 4 million nurses across the U.S., and most of them are not public health nurses. Right. Even though they may have some of the knowledge behind what public health nursing or what public health needs are, um, how would you mobilize nursing in general? Uh, to be more involved in things like policy and advocacy for uh, population health? Uh, how do we mobilize them? Uh, because they're not in a role, they're, you know, they may be at bedside or they may be in a specialty area where they're very looking at very specific things. So how do we mobilize uh, nursing in general um, to look at things like that and be more involved? Okay, so I have two points to make on that. I have a very, um, I have a colleague who's who's really brilliant, Dr. Sean Knipe, and you may follow her on Twitter too. Um, and and as we've worked on uh, providing input, instructive input rather, to the future of nursing 2020, 2030, which as you know, they're focusing more on the social determinants of health, which really are the very, they're, they're different than social needs, right? They're very upstream policy, which people get that confused all the time. 
But she asserts, and I believe she's 100% correct, I agree with her on this, is that if we're asking nurses in the acute care setting to work on those social needs or social determinants, even more upstream policy, there needs to be a percent allocation of their FTE to do that work. We keep asking people to do things for nothing, and nurses are great about doing things for nothing. And believe me, I have given away, I cannot tell you how many (laughs) countless thousands and thousands of hours, okay? But I do believe we it's time to rethink some of that. And now, especially with the COVID pandemic really shining the microscope or magnifying glass on the disparities that exist in communities where um, Blacks and Latinos and, and others are disproportionately affected by COVID. They have the disease, sometimes anywhere from 60 to 100%, depending on the zip code. We have to be intentional about that work. We cannot go back to the status quo. We cannot go back. We have to address structural racism and those types of things that are underlying for these disparities. So in order to do that, you know, I would, I would say that acute care settings, just like uh, higher education and nursing, need to have social missions. And that means that you're allocating time to work on that, right? To build those networks, to work on those policies. So that's the more larger picture. But now let me get back to what you asked in terms of the advocacy. Because many of us, just like you, belong to professional organizations, right? And in that professional organization, um, we we engage in advocacy type educa- advocacy type efforts. Many of those are instructive, right? We want to tell you why this is important, so that we can, for example, with the CARES Act, we're working on messaging not only inward facing toward nursing, but also outward facing toward organizations around why it's important to take some of that funding right, specifically that's focused at public health to increase, to to, uh, bolster and build up, really restore the public health nursing workforce. You know, we probably got around, I'm pulling this number out, I I can't remember the exact number, but we're probably around 30,000 nurses in state and local health departments that are public health nurses. That's abysmal. So, So what can we do as nurses? Well, first of all, join a professional organization. And I believe nurses need self-efficacy. They need mentoring in doing it, right? You know, each one teach one. So my my role and my commitment to the nursing profession is for to, to teach and mentor people in doing the process. Many times, you know, you might get called to do um, a press briefing or talk to a representative or whatever it is. And, and you need somebody in your network that you can call up who's done it before to say, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my three talking points. What do you think? And they can bounce it off and they can give you support as you go in to do that activity. So I, I believe the mentorship is really important and also being involved and a member of your professional organization is critical um, and establishing local re- relationships with your elected officials locally when they're not in session. So go to their local office, call them up. I've got them on my phone 
I have their phone numbers here. I call them up. And many sometimes they don't like what I have to say, but we have to express that as a constituent, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree. And what I like to, uh, one, one of the points that you made that I'd really like is that active participation. Uh, so I know like I was, you know, when we're, when I see student resumes and I'm looking through things and I see memberships and I always go back to them and say, how are you actively a member of this organization? And uh, they say, oh, I just pay my annual dues, which is great because it supports, it still supports the organization. Yeah. But I think uh, the real richness comes uh, and the, from the experience of being actively involved in various committees or even getting the word out about what the organization is about. Uh, so I think that's where the richness of the, and the mentoring comes into place. I think that's what you're addressing. Absolutely. With, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so um, just since you brought this up and, and I've had an opportunity to talk to my local representative a couple of times, um, how do you do that cold call or how do you do that initial reach out? Because my first time was extremely awkward. I didn't really, uh, you know, you put these local representatives on this pedestal and trying to equal things out. The first time I called was yeah, a little yeah. bit weird. Um, how do you, how, how would, how would you recommend somebody who's never done something like that yeah. before? Okay. 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 So first I want you just to imagine, I'm going to, I'm going to walk you through the scenario. Okay. So you've never called your elected official. The first thing I think that's really important is that you go on to the internet and you look up your, your elected official is going to have some kind of web page. Look them up. Um, what's their background? Did, can you find out, did, is anybody in their family a nurse? Or maybe there's something in there that indicates that they had some kind of interface with the healthcare system, right? Um, maybe just find, just see if there's something that you have in common with that elected official, besides being an important constituent voting member, right? And so I, I remember calling up my elected official for the first time in Victoria, who uh, I wasn't really happy with because I was frustrated. And I said, hi, you know, I'm Lisa Campbell. Uh, I'd like to make an appointment to talk to Representative, you know, Morrison. Uh, we're actually neighbors. And I'd like to make an appointment to come into her office. So I went into her office and I went in. Actually, you know, don't go in. If you, if you have a complaint, go in with the solution. So I went in with this situation we were having with the Texas Railroad Commission, which, by the way, they don't regulate the railroads. They regulate oil and gas. Pretty sneaky title, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, right? So I went in and I said, look, we have these five groundwater districts. We're asking for a rule change. The Texas Railroad Commission refused us. I mean, we worked with the, actually the a law clinic at UT. They refused us, summarily refused us in two days. We weren't asking for anything onerous. And by the way, the groundwater districts were put in statute by the Texas legislature. Go figure, right? It's like, I don't know. I think they don't know what they do half the time. But anyway, I went in to meet with her and I explained everything. And, and she assured me that she would help me navigate it or get meetings. But I have to tell you, that didn't go very far. And when I left, do you know how nurses have intuitions that we should always trust? Uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm quite familiar with that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I just had this feeling that that just fell on deaf ears. 
but it didn't keep me from trying. I had repeated interactions with, with this representative and repeated it, you know, yeah, it's awkward. I will tell you um, the most awkward it can get is when I feel emotional about a situation. And so I try to really step back and try to be objective and check my emotions at the door because they get me in trouble every time. Right. So I, I think finding that common ground um, and the other thing, just remember, they're they're no more important than you are. Just because they got elected doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah, they could get unelected in the next go around, right? Absolutely. And, and by the way, I want to put one plug in here for your listeners. I think we need more nurses locally to run for office like school board, city council. You don't have to run for a state office. But can you imagine what, what would happen now in these cities with nurses on city council, when when mayors are trying to make decisions about COVID nineteen, sheltering at home, wearing masks, all these kinds of things, we can inform that. I think we have to remember. Same thing with school boards; those are really important. Those are important positions that we could we could occupy those seats. So I would say, if anybody has an aspiration to do that, start locally. Yeah, sure. I have a I have a colleague of mine who's uh, running uh, for office, and then uh, that's one of the things actually I was trying to do is uh, get a few people uh, that were nurses in political roles uh, on the show, uh, and having them speak to uh, what it took because I do believe I think more nurses should be in those roles because uh, you know uh, whether it we're so uh, sort of. Um, there's a stereotype that they look at when we talk about nurses, nurses are in hospitals and doing direct patient care. But in reality, I always have to tell my, you know, when I, when I'm teaching, especially uh, really talk to my students about the extensive role of nursing, like worldwide, like in almost in every sector, you should, how nurses have impact. Uh, so I completely agree with that. So, so I want to say one thing. So you notice on Nurse Twitter how some of our colleagues remind us that nurses don't only practice in a healthcare or medical care setting or public health. They can be in, you know, hired by grocery chains. They can be hired by, you know, industry, you know, in a range of settings. And I think about a colleague of mine who works with a team of architects mm, to yeah. develop um, acute care, hospitals, veterinary medicine clinics, and they 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 design these facilities. They are they're she's part of an expert interprofessional team. So nurses really, you know, there are so many opportunities for nurses to practice in many domains. And sometimes organizations don't even need know that they need a nurse until you tell them what you could do. Even if they have a position open, actually a nurse would be exceptionally qualified for a lot of these positions. I know several colleagues who have approached organizations and they hadn't thought about a nurse and they basically pitched themselves and they got this amazing job. Yeah. And especially when we have nurses that are, that come into nursing as a second career, yes. they've already have uh, the business side or the, you know, I actually talked to a colleague of mine who uh, is a nurse now, but he started out as an artist uh, and did that for many years, sculptures, paintings, stuff like that, and then got into nursing. And um, yeah, so they're all varied backgrounds. Uh, right. So I think there's always opportunities for nurses to take advantage of both skills uh, and experiences. Yeah, so absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I want to 
move us towards yes. what's going on in the world now yeah. <laughs> as we all shelter in place uh, with COVID-19. We hear a lot about nurses going to hospitals and being celebrated, but I know public health nursing uh, is a whole different animal that we're really not seeing. We know they're there. We know where they're doing their work. Uh, but what's going on in the public health nursing sector during this uh, crisis? Yeah, so that yeah, that's really important to address. There, when this all started, the COVID nineteen, we know that, um, and I said it on BBC World that we didn't have enough testing. So we have to do two things. You know, we have to contain the spread, and we have to mitigate the surge in our hospitals. So containing the spread means. We have to identify cases and do contact investigation with those cases. And then we have to give them instructions about quarantining and making sure that they have everything they need to maintain at home, you know, from food to their medications to whatever. And so people really often forget the important role of public health nurses in that space of contact tracing. So that means that if you're a case just, just in case, just so we have common ground on this. So if you're a case, that means I'm going to call you up and find out, ask you some questions to try to determine who might have exposed you. So as an example, many people that are called now, because um, I listen to my husband make those calls, he volunteers to make those calls while I'm working. Many people actually, they either know they got it from a family member because the family member's sick and now in the hospital or sick recovering, or uh, they got exposed at work or they were in the community and they have no idea how they got exposed. A lot of people that are getting called, they have virtually no symptoms or they're subclinical. Um, so it's really important to determine who the contacts are because they need to be reached out to to get tested and to be quarantined. So that's how we contain the spread. We minimize the spread of disease. So that's really important. That's what public health nurses are doing. But here's the other thing that's the kicker. So we have essential public health services that we provide uh, at the local or state level, depending on the, you know, depending on how the public health system set up in any respective state. So uh, in Texas, we're decentralized. That means that we have 60 local health departments that cover maybe around 100 counties, let's say. We have 254 counties in the state of Texas, and we have 11 health, um, public health regions that then will cover all those additional services. So as everybody's attention's diverted to the COVID response in public health, and there's a lot of things besides the contact tracing that we're doing in terms of preparedness and response, while they're diverted there, there's still those essential health services that need to be done. So public health nurses are having to work 12 to 14 hours, seven days a week, not only to respond to COVID, but to cover those other essential public health services like TB control, vaccinations, immunization program, uh, maternal ch- any maternal child health, uh, you know, WIC, any, any of those other services, any kinds of community services and programs that are put in place. So that, that's really what we're having to do. You know, public health is having to set up the testing. Um, they're having to figure out referral. They're having to do all this. Uh, many states are prepared better than others, but the bottom line is we do not have enough tests and we don't have enough 
uh, public health uh, workforce in other in order to respond appropriately and meet the other essential community services that we provide. So talk about strapped. We're seriously strapped. You know, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see. I, I know, like public health nursing, just in general, as we mentioned before, as you know, uh, the numbers are low. They should mm-hmm. be a lot higher, just because of everything that's going on. But especially with COVID nineteen, because I know that there's a lot of legwork involved with that. Very time consuming, plus all the other things that are going on, as you mentioned, uh, still need public health nurses' attention. So, right. Um, so it becomes a it becomes even a bigger issue. Right. Because, because, you know, we're seeing, unfortunately, because parents can't or the, the, the guardian of the children can't take these kids out to get vaccines. Now we have kids that are behind in their vaccines. Well, what is that going to do to, you know, vaccine preventable diseases in children mm-hmm. and herd immunity and community spread? I mean, look at we've had pertussis outbreaks. We've had measles outbreaks. You know, we, you know, how are we addressing people that are either vaccine hesitant or or anti-vaccine? You know, how are we addressing um, maternal child services that are so important to people? You know, um, I mean, wow. You know, we could go on forever with that. But it is very it is problematic because we're strapped and now we're having to I mean, I see it as these little threads about ready to snap because there's only so much that you can deliver with so little people, with so few public health nurses. Absolutely. Um, It just sounds like we need like a whole different plan. And I don't know, I'm not in the loop of what the uh, cities and states are necessarily doing for post COVID uh, just from a perspective of things like immunizations, like how do you catch uh, millions of children up on their mm-hmm. vaccinations and how do you, uh, you know, address all the other issues that are going to be related as a result of people not getting uh, the services that they would have normally received uh, during this time. So I don't know what the plans for those are, but it sounds like something that people definitely need to start planning now. Right. And right. And part of what we're doing in the public health nursing section is advocating for the CARES Act funding to be that's drawn down from the federal to the state to the local level to help um, bolster the public health nursing workforce and do more workforce training because, you know, you could do place-based immunization clinics where you're going more into the community, where you're not asking to come to them with nurse strike teams to increase the, you know, to catch people up. There's a lot of things we could do, but we have to have the capacity to do it. Right. I know California for like the bachelors of nursing program, they have a public health nursing component to it. Uh, so when they finish their bachelors and I'm not, I'm not sure if every state has it, but some states also have a program like that. Um, how do you think uh, academia uh, might be able to assist? Is there a place for academia to fill some of that gap uh, for public health nursing? Um, your thoughts? Okay, so uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Because all of a sudden, okay, so I'm going to say something that that I'm going to just strike right at the heart because I'm a direct person. Are you ready for this? So unfortunately, um, academia, nursing uh, nursing, uh, curricula has been very acute and primary care focused. I agree. And has almost all but erased community public health nursing. 
it's almost like an afterthought. Many times nurses that nursing educators that teach those courses may have little to no experience in those domains, those practice domains. So it's really important for um, nursing academics and nursing schools of nursing and nursing curricula to really bolster public health nursing in their curricula and really feed it through. I think there's a creative way that we can do that, but it has to be valued at the same level of acute and primary care. And that's not what's going on right now. If I could say one thing, it would be valuing that, that domain, that practice domain for nursing. Absolutely. Well, thank is you that, so much. Is that yeah, correct? <laughs> I'm just being no, honest. No, I think you're preaching to the choir. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a public health should be a much a bigger. Um, I, I, I mean, originally we had, we had set up, uh, I think, academia for the acute care setting, and we just never moved away from that. There is definitely a place for acute care setting. I know. Oh, yeah. My uh, the the uh, university I teach at, uh, we just added uh, ambulatory care, and we talk a lot about. It. Uh, so, but it's it's an elective, however, as part of a grant. Um, but again, it's uh, something in addition to um, that. I think uh, students uh, value, um, and I think it's a great experience. But public health, again, uh, I think is one of those components that we definitely need to spend more time on, and then. Uh, the social determinants of health uh, with the new uh, uh, future of nursing report that's hopefully coming out soon. Or uh, or maybe, or, yeah. you know, who knows with COVID-19, right? Oh, it yeah. might, be, might be a little delay. We never know. Right? <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> uh, so hopefully things uh, will, will stay on track. And uh, um, uh, so a lot of we'll, we'll wait and see, but hopefully nurses take a, a stronger stance with everything going on and being a proactive in the community. I think that's, that's very important Uh, from, from public health to acute care. I think nurses overall need to be more involved in the community settings. I want to, I want to leave you with one thought because you were asking a little, we were talking about a little bit about mentorship and I said, usually I do. It's almost like an episodic drive-through kind of mentorship with my colleagues but there's something I was thinking about, uh, you know, mentorship sort of happens organically, right, in those relationships. So what Loretta said, that, that relationships are really important. I, you know, I firmly believe that and practice that. And I believe that a mentor walks beside you. The mentor never walks in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to list, leave your listeners with that. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been awesome. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for uh-huh. joining us. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing our, our virtual relationship through Twitter. And uh, maybe down the line, we'll actually get to meet. Yeah, I hope so, too, Ali. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. So again, we're, we've been joined by Dr. Lisa Campbell. Uh, her uh, information and bio is available on my website. Uh, and uh, that will conclude another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. Thank you and have a fantastic day. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com 
That's www.alirtayyeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.